just so you don't accuse me of tampering with the scriptures here, and going on to another chapter, not staying within the parameters of the chapters that are laid out for us in the Bible, I just want you to know that the chapter sections are not inspired, that there's someone's idea of what they think would be helpful, and for the most part they are helpful, but they're just not inspired. Sometimes it's helpful to know that, actually. <laughs> One way to understand this passage is to see it as a call for believers to not fear. From verse 1 of chapter 43 to verse 44, verse 5, you could see it as one long argument for God not to fear and why you shouldn't fear. And last week we looked at the first 13 verses and we tried to understand why we should not fear. And twice God said, don't fear, don't fear. And then now in verses 14 through chapter, the next chapter, verse 5, we're going to look, continue to look at why you should not fear. And last week we asked the question, why is God so concerned that we not fear? And we, we said that someone counted, I didn't, but someone counted there about 365 times where God says, do not fear in the Bible. You can check that out to see if it's accurate or not. I didn't. But he says it over and over again. And in fact, as we read these verses, you might find yourself saying, I've heard this argument before. <laughs> This sounds like the same thing he's already said, and you might hear it again and again and again. Similar arguments made over and over again for why you should not fear. And so why is God so concerned that you do not fear? Why is he saying this over and over again? Because fear will keep us from becoming the courageous witnesses to the truth of who God is that we are called to be. Fear is what keeps us from being whom God called us to be. When we are free from our fear, we will be bold and courageous, loving, caring, truth-speaking, God-obeying people. The problem is we are naturally fearful people, aren't we? We are naturally fearful in so many different ways. And every day we find ourselves having to battle these fears that are all around us and within us, that are attacking us. But God saved you so that you would be a bold, joyful witness to who God is. And this is more, but not less, than simply saying that we are to go out and evangelize the world. You see, the primary directive, the primary point is we are to say that there is one God and there is no other God. And this is the only God who saves. We are to declare the truth of God with our lives. That is who we are. That is what it means to live. That's what it means to have life. To declare the truth of who God is. When we have fear, we can become paralyzed by it. And our witness is hampered. We need de desperately to believe God's word of comfort so that we will be be bold and effective in the short little time of this life that God has given to us. 
We have a short window of opportunity. Our lives are going to be over before we know it. And we have the privilege and the joy and the responsibility that no one else has to proclaim the greatness of our God. Because we have seen and tasted that he is good. And that is what we live for. That is it. Have you ever tried to talk sense into someone who is terrified by something? I would say inordinately terrified by something. You say, you know, planes are the safest things to be in. <laughs> They're safer than being in cars. Right? But if you're terrified, if you're fearful, there is no argument that's going to win you over. We, we don't make sense when we're fearful and terrified. We can't make sense of things. They give you every argument, but you won't do it, at least not rightly. Until you feel safe, you will not do it, and you will not do it well. And we can't serve God well if we are paralyzed by fear. So God is committed to speaking to us in such a way that he shapes us, common people like you, common people like me, people who are no better or different than anyone else. In fact, the bottom of the barrel people, like me, or even fishermen, like the disciples, and he turns them into fearless and bold witnesses of the truth of who God is. Listen to Acts 4, verse 13. Listen to the bewilderment of the leaders of the people when they see that these fishermen are such bold and courageous witnesses. We read, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They were astonished. The Spirit of God was working in their lives. They had seen the risen Christ. And that's, and the glory of God is what made them bold, courageous witnesses. And no one could understand it, because it didn't make any sense any other way. So why should you not fear? Because God shows us, through his dealings with Judah, that he will deliver his people from every enemy who stands against them, no matter how great they might appear. In a great reversal, what we see in verses 14 through 15, God says that he will deliver his people by making fugitives, of those who had taken his people into captivity. What a great reversal we see here. And you really need to understand the context of the words that are being spoken here. The words we see in this passage. You see, the greatness of the problem that Judah faced needs to be understood by us. If we're to understand these words that God is speaking to them. You see, in their exile, in captivity, the Babylonians looked invincible. The Babylonians looked like the most impossible, impossible tower to ever fall over. They were the stronghold of the world. And there was no way in their minds that they could ever fall. They had no Achilles heel in the mind of the people. Judah, in contrast, was small and insignificant, and their loss of captivity to the Babylonians reminded them over and over again of how small and insignificant they were. So what does God have to say to the big, bad Babylonians? 
God says he will turn them into fugitives. They will flee in the ships that they love so much, and they will escape. And by the way, Chaldeans is the same name for Babylonians, just so you're aware of that. In a great reversal, God turns the Babylonians into the exiles. And what is more, God says he'll defeat their oppressors while providing a way for his people to escape. And the pattern of what he's going to do here is patterned after the exodus from Egypt. In verses 16 through 17. Let me read these words. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They're extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do you see? Do you see the, the exodus in there? God is saying he's going to deliver them. And he is going to provide a way for them to escape. This little nation in this powerhouse of captivity to the Babylonians. He's going to deliver them. He's going to make a way for them to get out, just like Israel escaped from Egypt, right? And not only that, but he's going to single-handedly take out the Babylonians, extinguish them to even a wick, quenched like a wick. And you can even picture that, can't you? Extinguishing the, fl the flame. They will be brought to nothing. And I want us to understand that this one-time event of the Exodus, when God delivered his people from Egypt, that is a pattern that God likes to bring up over and over again for how God delivers his people. And so we see throughout the Bible this similar pattern of God delivering his people as he did in the Exodus. His saving work. But then, surprisingly, right after saying that, we are told that we are not to remember the former things. Because he is going to do something new, which is described in verses 18 through 20. After comparing his deliverance to the Exodus experience, God says, forget the former things. I am doing something new. That sounds kind of confusing at first, doesn't it? Well, listen to what he says. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do not perceive it. I will make a way in the wilderness, and rivers in the desert, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. The Babylonians were not the only problem that God's people faced, was it? They also had to get home. There were multiple barriers standing in the way of God's people in their deliverance. You see, even if they were miraculously freed, they would face the obstacle of getting home. And apparently there were 500 to 900 miles, depending on the route you took, from where they were at to arriving at their destination. And it would have taken at least four months through harsh terrain to arrive at their destination. It would have been perilous. It would have been robbers. It would have been harsh conditions and dangers. And then what could they expect when they arrived back? What could they expect? Well, only a devastated country, a place that was torn apart and destroyed. No welcoming committee, but just a difficult task of rebuilding their lives from scratch. And most of the people who left would be most fit to travel were born in Babylon. They didn't even remember their former place. 
And so you can certainly see a shadow of the fulfillment of what God is going to do in bringing his returned people back home from Babylon. Right? He's going to make a way in the wilderness. Even the animals will honor him. And he'll bring forth their provisions of water in the desert. But my question for you is, why does he say I'm going to do something new? And why does he say to forget those former things? What is the point that God is making here? Clearly God doesn't want us to forget the redemptive history of what he has done in the past, does he? God wants you to remember those things. Well, I don't think he's saying forget what I've done in the past. I think what he's saying is I'm going to do something so great, something so magnificent, something so new, that you are going to want to forget what he has done in the past. God is working in such a way that he is going to do something new and glorious that's according to his character. And this is not summarized in his bringing his people back from Babylon. That is not the new thing that God is going to do. God is referring to something even greater. In fact, when the waters are poured out, it often refers to the Spirit of God, as we'll see in chapter 44, verses 1 through 5. The Spirit of God working to accomplish his great purposes, being poured out on his people. So sure, the Babylonian deliverance is a type or a shadow of, God's, of what God's going to do, but there's something greater here that will make the other things pale in comparison to it. In such a way, they, they were good and they performed their function, and yes, we remember what God has done. But there's something so much greater he's going to do that the old things will pale in comparison. And the ultimate and the greater fulfillment of this is the new work that God is promising to do through Christ when he frees us from our sins. And yes, I'm sure God provided water for his people. But there's a greater water that God's going to give to his people. There's a greater sustenance sustenance that God gives to his people. The far greater deliverance is what Christ accomplished on the cross. And the application of that work is through the Spirit of God that feeds us and nourishes us and enables us to finish the course that God has called us to finish, that brings us home safely to his kingdom, which is what God is ultimately doing for his people. That is the ultimate fulfillment of this, is God bringing his people back to his kingdom safely and soundly through his work on the cross, his finished work on the cross where he deals with our enemies, where he defeats our sin, where he conquers everything that stands against us. And by his spirit, he brings us safely through keeping those truths embedded in the center of our hearts. And so we live our lives with praise and faithfulness and love for God. Do you have enemies like the Israelites that might cause you to fear? Are there things that threaten you in your life? Things that cause you to kind of want to hide? Maybe not get up in the morning? Maybe stay in bed? Maybe you know God's promises to defeat your enemies, but it looks impossible. Too good to be true. The Babylonians are too big. They're too mighty. We are too small. There's no way this can happen unless our God is big and mighty. Can you really trust God to fulfill his promises? Well, the question is, where do you go? What do you look to? 
Where do you find the confidence to trust God, to live fearlessly, to be a witness for his name, to praise him with your life? Well, you need to look to the identity of the one who makes the promises. You need to know who God is. You need to see his ID. And I intentionally skipped over God's identifying of himself in verse 14 so that we could press into the reality of who our God is that gives us the confidence to live courageously in this world. Who is your God? Listen to these words. He is your Redeemer. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the Creator of Israel, the Creator of His people. He is your King. That's who your God is. It's amazing how we tend to hold on to one aspect of the character of God. And it's really easy to forget some of the other aspects of God. And to imagine that this is all our God is. Well, he is a king, you know? That's true, isn't it? He is my redeemer. We forget that he is the holy one as well. And that he is the king. And when we do that, we find ourselves fearful. We find ourselves forgetting and not holding on to the true God who reigns supreme over all. He is all these things. And this is the God who drives out every fear. We must hold on to the totality of the character of who God is if we're to live fearless lives in this world. Yes, God is your redeemer, but he's also the Holy One of Israel. He is also the creator of God's people. And he is also your king. And he is all these things in their perfection. And he will always be. His multifaceted name is what gives us confidence that God will fulfill every promise that he makes. And these names don't only give us confidence that he can fulfill these things, but notice if you really understand who God is, you will understand that he loves to do these things for his people. These, these titles, these names, not only show us power and might, but also love and compassion. And that's why we need to know our God. Because it's not enough to see him as all-powerful. We need to see him as compassionate and loving. It's not enough to just see him as compassionate and loving. We need to see him as all-powerful. If either of these are missing, we are going to be fearful people. And we're not going to be able to live for him and exalt him as we ought to. So behold your God. Behold your God. He will accomplish everything he says he will. So what is the underlying motivating factor for all that God does, including making us and delivering us? And the answer is his praise. You can be confident that God will save you because God is determined to praise his name. If you are God's child, you don't have to doubt whether God will save you. God is determined to save you if you are his child just as much as he is determined to glorify and praise his very own name. Verse 21, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. God created everyone and everything for the praise of his name, didn't he? And he's going to get praise from everything, whether or not it is offered willingly or against our wills. You and I will either praise God willingly in grateful response to his saving work in our lives, or you will praise God unwillingly 
through his justice being vindicated in eternal judgment towards you. But here God is not referring to creation in general, is he? God is referring to specifically to his people, whom he has created specifically to willingly praise and honor his name. God is forming, shaping his church into people who love to praise him more than anything else. Church, this is why you are here. This is why you exist. To become someone who willingly declares the praise of our God. As we see his glory and our salvation, we are constantly being transformed into those who willingly praise and are devoted to our God. When you listen to sermons, when you read the Bible, when you sing, you should respond to this saving and powerful God by praising him and worshiping and rejoicing in him and declaring that he is God and that there is none other. You should be like a bubble, a bubbler, <laughs> that is constantly overflowing with praise to our God. We listen and respond. And this is the supreme purpose for why God saved you, by the way. There is no greater purpose. And by the way, this is our greatest good and our greatest joy. Isn't that amazing? That your joy and God's glory are not in conflict with each other. Your greatest joy is praising God, and that is exactly what God has determined to make you into in your life, to make you a worshiper of God. Praise God for that. So after being lifted up to the great heights of God's saving promises, we are brought back down very low to the problem of our sin and judgment that we need to be saved from in verses 22 through 28. Now, think about this. And this happens over and over again in the book of Isaiah, from one extreme to the next extreme, almost immediately out of nowhere. It is as if God wants us to continually see the greatness of his deliverance in contrast to the greatness of the problem for the sake of his praise, so that he keeps bringing us back and forth so that you will overflow with praise to God in light of what God has saved you from. Because we forget what God has saved us from. And our praise dwindles and is silent when we forget what God has saved us from. So the great problem is the failure to honor the Lord as Lord, verses 22 through 24. So what is the accusation? It's always good to look at what God accuses his people of. Well, God says they did not call upon me. They didn't cry out to God as those in need. That's what God said they failed to do, is to cry out to him. That's what God hates. God says they have become weary of him. They are bored of God. They are tired of God. They are weary of God. They have not brought him sheep for burnt offerings or honored him with sacrifices. They have not brought him sweet cane or fat of their sacrifices. What God was deserved, what was brought to God, the that. It is very possible, by the way, that they were doing all these things. Do you know that? It's very possible that they were very religious in their actions. That they were doing many of these things at the very same time when God says they didn't do them. I mean, that's what we see in chapter 1, verses 
12 through uh, 14 of Isaiah. So what is the problem? Well, even though they might have done these things, their hearts were not in it. And so in God's sight, it was as if they were not doing them at all. They were meaningless to God. They might mouth the right words. They might act the right way in some form or shape. But their hearts were not behind their actions and what they were doing. They might have prayed, but they were not praying to God. Their worship was a bore to them. It was a drag. It was boring. Their devotions were a bore. Their singing was a bore. It was all way too much effort that God required of them. And God says, I didn't weary you. I didn't weary you. I haven't done anything to make a burden for you. I was convicted about this when I read this. I get a lot of prayer requests. And sometimes, in order not to be a hypocrite, I will pray for them immediately after I'm given it. Right? So that I can say I prayed for them. Well, what's the good of that? The question is, is my heart in it? Am I delighting to pray for people? Am I rejoicing to be able to worship God? Is this great and mighty God my delight? Do I come to church with a sense of, oh man, i got to get through this again. He's going to preach for so long. <laughs> and by the way, I sometimes have that same reaction. It is a real battle. So what does God think of such worship? Well, does God, is God really pleased with bored worshipers? No, God says as if you're not doing it at all. Such worship wearies me. I didn't weary you, he says, but you have wearied me. God hates such worship. Look back at chapter 1, verse 10 through 17, and you'll see this. I don't have time to go there. So what does God see when he sees your worship? What does God see? Does he see devotion? Does he see love? Does he see you say, God, my heart is not in this, but I want it to be. I think God is honored by that. I think God is honored when we say, God, I know that you are better than anything. And it is my privilege to come to you and worship you. But Lord, my heart is so, so bored. Forgive me, Lord. And I think God loves to answer that. Fill my heart with praise. Give me a right understanding of who you are. Forgive me. Do you do just enough to soothe your conscience so you feel okay? Ask God to tune your heart to sing his praise. God expounds on the problem saying it was not merely their failure to honor God, but active rebellion against him. And I think even their religious actions were sin to God because it was not done out of worship and says, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. So God says in light of this great problem that he has a glorious solution. Look at the contrast between the great problem and God's glorious solution here in verse 25. Let these words sink into your heart. There are no greater words than in all the world than this. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. For my own sake, I will not remember your sins. 
So what is the solution? God says, I am the one who blots out your sins. Your greatest problem in all the world is your sin. That you rebelled against God. There is no greater problem you could possibly ever have. And I said that over and over again, and I'll keep saying that. Because we get so distracted by other things. The answer to your problem is God. He is the one who erases your sins from your account. He is the one who remembers your sins no more. They are no longer standing against you if you are in Christ Jesus. So how does God do this? Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is the sacrifice that alone can please what God demands of you for your sins. Only an eternal, all-powerful God can deal with your eternal error and rebellion that demands eternal judgment. Only God can do that. You cannot do one ounce of good for yourself. You can't save yourself. And through him we can say, my sin, not in part, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Those are the sweetest words in all the world. It is therefore well with my soul. And that's the only way we can say today it is well with our soul. Not because our work is going well. Not because we are able to um, get up in the morning, go to work, our family's functioning well. The only reason it is well with our souls today is because our sins are blotted out. For it is not well with you, no matter what is going on in your life. Psalm 32, verse 1, David said this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That is the true blessed person. So what does it mean that God will not remember something? I mean, we look at God, we know he's all-knowing. How can we say he forgets something? Isn't God omniscient, meaning he knows all things? Well, it doesn't mean he literally doesn't remember it. We use words to try to understand an almighty and all-powerful God. What it means is he doesn't bring it up against you on your account. That's what it means. He will never bring it against you on your account. If God has paid for it, if it is covered, he cannot bring it up against you again. It would be unjust for God to do that. And he will not bring it up again. You know, if only we could learn in our marriages and in our relationships to act like God. When we have confessed and repented, we forgive and forget, don't we? We don't bring it up again, against each other. And that's the way we should act. But how great is it to know that unlike us, that is the way God acts in perfection. What a great thought. He is much better than we are. We praise God for that. Against the backdrop of our hopelessness and condemnation, condemnation, God offers salvation. What a glorious light in a dark world. And why does God offer this great salvation this way? For your name's sake? Because you are good? Because you have something to offer God? Well, no. It says here, for his name's sake. In other words, for his praise. So that he might be honored and magnified. And so your heart should be saying, yes, that's what I want to do. That's what I love to do, right? And that's exactly why God saved you, for his name's sake. So that he gets the glory and the praise. You might think if he saves me for, my, for his name's sake, rather than my name's sake, wouldn't that, mean, wouldn't that mean he loves me less? And isn't that the way we tend to think? And I said this last week, but I'll say it again because we need to be reminded of it. This means God loves you more. You see, if God were to save you because of you, it would mean his love is limited based on you. 
If God were to lovely you based on your loveliness, then his love would be limited based on how lovely you are and how good you are. And there would be no love at all because <laughs> we are not lovely in ourselves. So praise God, it's not based on us. But if it's based on God for his sake, then his love is never-ending. It is an overflow of love. It is a God-sized love. And if it is for his praise, I can tell you he's going to love you so that his praise increases. What an awesome thought. If God saved you because of his desire to gloriously display his grace before his creatures, for his sake, then his love is unlimited. If you are saved, you are greatly loved today. So just when you thought it could not get any worse, it gets worse. We find that the problem is even greater than you might think it is. Not only do we have a sin problem, but we don't think we have a sin problem. We think we are good. We think we are not bad. We need to be saved twice. Not only from our sinfulness, but also from our perceived righteousness. And we see that in verses 26 through 27. How bad is the problem? Put me in remembrance, says God. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. God invites as if in a court case, says, bring your argument to me. Defend yourself as in a court case. Show me why you deserve my favor. Show me why you can save yourself. Whoops. <laughs> Go ahead and prove your case. And the purpose of this is to expose the truth of your condition, that you have no case before God. God isn't really interested in them bringing a case before him. He knows they have no case. He just wants to show them that they have nothing to present, nothing to bring before God. He's exposing their faults. How hard it is, is it for us to acknowledge our sin to God? There is nothing harder in all the world for, than for us to truly be repentant. It's impossible for us to do this. We are really good at justifying ourselves. We are really good at doing something to save ourselves. We love to do something to save ourselves. We will do either of those things, justify ourselves or save ourselves, but we will not, we will not repent to God. We will not get on our knees before God. We will not come His way through faith in Christ alone as the only means for our salvation. Rebellious hearts are dead set against that. Isn't that amazing? We will not admit our own inability to save ourselves. We will not glorify God because we are proud and rebellious. And as if you were on the hot seat, God did this with you. What would you say? If God put you up there and said, okay, give me your argument, give me your best try. What would you say? Well, none of us would have a case. And in fact, God says, this is the God, God doesn't even wait for an answer. He says, I know the answer. This is the way it's always been with you. Even your best among you could not save yourselves. Even your best religious leaders needed to be saved. God says your greatest, most loved heroes, whether that be Moses or David, had the same problem. We are all sinners by birth. We all need to be saved from ourselves. All history has proven that no one can stand before God. So what is the consequence for failures, for sinners to come to God in repentance and humility through faith and repentance, the answer is God will utterly destroy you. God will pour out eternal judgment on you. 
And we see in verses 28 what God says, Therefore I'll profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to revival. Those who refuse God's path of salvation to justify themselves or to save themselves will meet with God's judgment. And the word translated destruction here is very significant. It's the same word used for the total judgment of the pagan Canaanite cultures. In Joshua 6, verse 17. We get the word anathema or accursed from this word. Failure to repent for us means eternal wrath of God. If you stand in your own righteousness, you will not stand. You will not meet the bar of God's justice. From this perspective, everything looks hopeless, but God loves to show the greatness of his power in contrast to the hopelessness of the situation that we are in. God says not only is he going to provide the means of forgiveness, I blot out your transgressions, but he's also going to provide the change of heart that forgiveness requires through his spirit. Verses 1 through 5. Praise God for his provision of grace for us. After the terrifying news for those who persist in unbelief, God reassures his people like he did in chapter 42, verses 18 through 25, that they are not to fear, that they are not to fear. We see this in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 44. So how does God bring assurance? What does God say here? He brings assurance by reminding us of who we are in relationship to God. God says, you are my servants. You are my chosen ones. You are the ones whom I have formed. And that is not talking about creation, forming how God created everything out of nothing. That's talking about God forming them into his people. God making them his very own. And Jeshurun means upright one versus Jacob the deceiver. So what does this mean? This means he will help you. If you are God's, fear not. He will take care of you. You are his servant. You are his chosen one. He has formed you. He will make you into his servant. He is determined to do that. And so God's people take the threats seriously, unlike anyone else, because we actually have faith. And then God reassures us. God reassures us. You have nothing to fear. But on what basis are we not to fear? What is God going to do to drive out the fear? We see this in verse 3. I will pour out the pour, I will, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. You have to understand the condition they were in after the end of the last chapter. Remember, the ground was brittle. It was reserved to destruction. The curse was upon everything. God had brought it to nothing. Right? But then, how does God relieve our fear? Listen to what he says here. Do not fear because, for, because, I will pour out my spirit on the dry land. And what is the effect? What will happen? The waters will overflow and what will spring up is life from the death. Life will spring up out of nowhere. That's what happens, isn't it? When you put water on dry land. Life comes up. Now this is not physical water, but spiritual water. This is the Spirit of God being poured out. God is giving the reverse of the curse. And the outcome is abundant blessings on their descendants. We see this in Acts 2 and continuing on, don't we? At Pentecost, we see God pouring out His Spirit. We are living in the period of history where God is pouring out His Spirit. And God is doing, pouring out His water on Thirsty land. 
raising up his people from nowhere. Praise God. So what is the effect that God's spirit will have? He will transform the bored, lifeless people into a committed people. Listen to verses 4 through 5. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. This life that sprouts up is the offspring of God. This is God's people we are talking about here, believers. It is only because of God's grace that there are any spiritual children of Abraham, according to John 1, verse 12. Galatians 3, verse 7 says, Know then, know then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And didn't God say he is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones? And he certainly can, and he certainly does. So my question for you is, do these people look like bored and weary worshipers? And the answer is no. These are people who willingly, desiringly, call out to God as Lord, as their Lord. To call on the name of God is what it means to be a part of the true Israel. All who call upon the Lord shall be saved, Acts 2, verse 21. And this is exactly what God promised to Abraham, a great name, many descendants, blessings, overflowings to the families of the earth. And not only did God's people call on his name, but they enthusiastically associate themselves with God's great name. They call on his name, and they say, He is my God. He is my Lord. And I want to be identified with him. That's how you know the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, when you want to be identified with the Lord, and when you call out to his name. That is a sign of the Spirit of God at work in you. Loyalty and commitment to God. Not boredom, not being tired, and so we pray, God, God, pour out your spirit in my heart. Empower me to love you. Empower me to be committed to you. Tear down the idols of my life that I might respond with praise and worship to you. Make me not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So we know God is working among us when his people enthusiastically call on the name of the Lord and associate themselves with the true God of Israel. We all struggle with this, don't we? This is a struggle. This is a daily battle. And that's why we preach. That's why we read. That's why we fellowship with each other and encourage each other in the Lord. Don't stop doing that. We need to continue to encourage each other in the Lord, to encourage, to spur one another on, and to hear God's word. Do you ever find yourself lacking courage, fearful in this life? Well, of course you do. Maybe you find your witness muffled. You find yourself loving other things. It is likely that at such times that God is feeling remote and far away and his promises don't seem real to us. We wonder, is this really true? Other things become big and significant to us and God becomes small and insignificant. Such passages as this are intended to remind you of God's presence and his nearness and of his promises. That they are near to you, that God loves you, that he cares for you, that he could not love you anymore. You need to know that. And you need to understand that deep down in your heart today. In Acts 4, the disciples are bearing bold witness of who Jesus is. And they are threatening not to speak anymore in his name. In Acts 4, verse 19, we read this. Peter and John answered them. And this is after the Spirit of God was poured out upon them. 
Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't do anything else. And that is the witness of the church. The true church cannot but speak in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are witnesses of our God. And we need to encourage each other to be that with our lives. If God is fighting in his word against your fears, then it is clear that you need to draw from the well of God's word daily. You should be hungry and thirsty to know all that God has to say to you. On July 1, 1838, Robert Murray McShane preached on Isaiah 44, verse 3, and said to his congregation in Dundee these words, When two travelers are going through the wilderness, you may know which of them is thirsty by his always looking out for wells. So it is with thirsty believers. They love the word, read, read, and preached. They thirst for it more and more. Is it so with you, dear believing brethren? In Scotland, long ago, it used to be so. Often after the blessing was pronounced, the people would not go away till they heard more. Ah, children of God, it is a fearful sign to see little thirst in you. I do not wonder much when the world stays away from our meetings for the word and prayer. But ah, when you do, I am dumb. My soul will weep in secret places for your pride. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your glorious word. We thank you for providing for us sufficient nourishment, Lord, to keep our praise bubbling over. God, I pray that we would not neglect your word. I pray that we wouldn't read heartlessly. And when we do, Lord, we pray that you would restore us. You pray that you would revive us. I pray that praise would flow from our mouths, Lord. You have created us and saved us to be people who proclaim your praises. And God, I pray that you would do that in our lives. God, may you cause this church to praise you in a way that honors your name. May you bring us joy and delight in our worship. And may we sing loudly. May we sing deeply. And may you be honored and praised with our response. God, we love you so much. I pray that if there's anyone in here who stands, even at this moment, under your just judgment, who is not in a blessed condition, Lord, who is rightly terrified, Lord, I pray that today you deliver them from their sin. I pray that you bring them safely into your kingdom. And may they be comforted by the only comfort in all the world, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that we can go forth from this place. Lord, may we not stop singing this week. May we sing continuously. And may we praise you and shine your light in this dark world. For your glory and your praise. In Jesus' name.